Ladies and gentlemen, it is a long journey to this moment. I am naturally indebted to And the Oscar goes to... Hello, and welcome to Thank the Academy, the podcast where we talk about every Academy Award-winning Best Picture film in order. We're your hosts, Zach and Kristen, and that's Kayla, our producer. Howdy. Hello. Hello. We're here. We truly are. It's not a trick we've pulled on you. (laughs) And we're here to talk about uh, the 46th Academy Awards and the Best Picture winner, the Sting. The Sting. Yes. Yeah. One of my all-time faves. Yeah. Not one of your new all-time faves. It isn't. Nothing against this movie. It just isn't, didn't quite slap for me, but... Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> it slapped for me. <laughs> I'm happy for you. I really am. Yeah, it was fun to rewatch it in this context. Yeah, the whole time we were watching, Zach was like, I used to watch this as a kid. I love all these things about it. I was like, all right, okay, fine. It's fine. Yeah, it's great. And it held up. (laughs) One of the greats. Uh, But before we get into talking too much about this, we have the Penny News. And very exciting Penny News at that. Yeah, we teased the Penny News in our last Archives episode. Yes. uh, Because we said there would be some shifting segments, uh, but... Shall we get to it? Yes, we have been keeping a secret Uh (laughs) for about six months now. Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, So the secret is that... Penny has a new pup friend. A brother. Yeah. So we have a second dog named... Bosley. Oh, Bosley. Named after our main man, the big Boz himself. (laughs) Tux. That's what we call our dog, Boz. <laughs> New York Times film critic Bosley Crowther. Yeah, yeah. This is also silly, the way we have acquired this dog. Quite L.A. Quite L.A. So a while ago, I um, was interviewed by this TV show called Lucky Dog, which is on CBS, and they place shelter dogs with families, essentially. And the show is about the dogs and training the dogs and, you know, kind of encouraging people to rescue, that sort of thing. And so I interviewed for the show in November. And then in February, they reached out to me and were like, hey, we just got some dogs from the shelter. We think there's one that would really match your profile. Because we were looking for a dog that would kind of bring Penny out of her shell a little bit. Um, Since she was used to having us home all the time and then us being out was difficult for her. So we're like, well, we want a second dog to like make her life easier. Yeah, and so then... Of course, they interview and like they want to put a dog that fits your situation. So Mm -hmm. like we're pretty active. We go out a lot. We take Penny to a lot of places. We hike. We do all that. So they wanted to find a dog that did all that with us, but then find a dog that would be good with Penny Mm because, of course, some dogs are not good with other dogs. And one, we also didn't want one that was too big. I don't know. There were a lot of things that they had to try to figure out, but then they found the perfect dog. Yeah. So we met him and they clicked right away and we said yes. Yeah. Uh, So we actually didn't get to have him until we filmed the episode, which Mm -hmm. was very hard. So we filmed the episode in April. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And it was a really fun day. And the episode aired on October 22nd, yeah. which means that we could finally tell the world about him. We had this secret dog for like six months. It was ridiculous. <laughs> well, and of course, people that have been to our place have met him. But many yeah. other people like didn't even know we had a dog. Yeah. I couldn't post any pictures. We signed like a bunch of NDA stuff about just what we would share, that kind of thing, until the episode was released. So we didn't really share much outside of like our family and like friends who were coming over. So anyways, he is wonderful. He's a little poodle terrier mix. We're not really sure. He's around mm, a year Between to two years. Between one and two years. Yeah. yeah. And he's so spunky and cute and sweet. And we love him to death. Yeah. And we'll post pictures of him. Yeah. So Penny and Bosley. Yay. And Penny has adjusted. (laughs) She wasn't sure about him at first, but Mm. (laughs) they're getting along great now. Yes. Good job, Penny and Bosley. So shall we get to the ceremony? Yeah, let's get into it. So today we are talking about the 46th Academy Awards. They were held on April 2nd, 1974 at, once again, the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was produced by Jack Haley Jr. and directed by Marty Pesita, who directed in the past. Mm -hmm. So he's back again. Uh, It was hosted by Burt Reynolds, Diana Ross, John Huston, and David Niven. Um, and kind of to start off the night, Liza Minnelli sang the opening number. Uh-huh. You know, it was a really big production. Really fun. She's a great performer. So she's very fun to watch. It's mm-hmm. very fun. Um, of course, as they do their opening bit with the hosts and such, um, they kept joking about, you know, keep your speeches short. You can't surprise us anymore. Blah, blah, blah. In reference to mm, the, previous the previous year's year. thank you speech debacle. And then to start off the ceremony, they did a look back through the archives of thank you speeches just to kind of remind everyone what they should do. (laughs) No more political statements, people. So they didn't play Greer Garson's six and a half minute speech. No. And they made jokes about how like you have to keep it short. So-and-so gave a speech and it should have been a 90 minute comedy special, blah, 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 that kind of thing. So they like really like hounded on this point. Obviously, it was a... the main takeaway from the previous ceremony. So it was the thing that was at the top of everyone's mind going into this one. Mm-hmm. And what's also funny is that there was a lot of buzz and chatter, especially in like the papers and stuff about like the craziest thing that could ever happen has already happened. So, mm. but little did they know more craziness was about to ensue. Uh-oh. Uh, once again, this is another one of the most iconic, memorable, however you want to describe it, ceremonies. So we will get to the incident later. But before that, the Sting won seven awards. Yeah. <laughs> um, the Exorcist and The Way We Were were the only other films to win multiple awards this year. Mm-hmm. Sadly, this ceremony was dedicated to Samuel Goldwyn because he did pass right before the ceremony, um, just, a, just a couple of months prior. Mm-hmm. Um, he died at the age of 94, um, wow. and he is the only person to have an Academy Awards ceremony dedicated solely to him. So strange. Yeah. And also, like, it's not like he did more than any Daryl of the F. other. Or... Yeah. Or the other people who are the M's right. of MGM. <laughs> <laughs> or even, like, the original Academy board members. and Yeah, I don't know. Douglas Fairbanks and, you know. But here we are. Um, they did an extra lawn in memoriam tribute to him as well. Hmm. 
This year, Julia Phillips becomes the first female producer to win for Best Picture. Yeah. So she, you know, works on The Sting, and congrats to her, breaking mm-hmm. in a little stride for the women here. Mm-hmm. Thought that was pretty cool. Um, we haven't seen a lot of women in, like, technical things other than, like, costumes and, and stuff like that. Editing. Costumes, makeup, editing. Yeah. So it's nice to kind of see that branching out a little bit. Yeah. And, of course, there are tons of women producers up to this point. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's just the winning part of it, the mm-hmm. Academy recognition part of it that hasn't really been there. Uh, additionally, Marvin Hamlish won three awards this year and became the first person to achieve this. And as of right now, is the only person to win three Oscars in one year without winning Best Picture. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So he was able to win these three awards because he was in the music category. And there were three distinct categories this year, including, of course, Best Song. Um, But he worked on two different films. He worked on The Sting and also The Way We Were. And the three categories that he ended up winning for were Best Original Dramatic Score. So original Mm -hmm. score. And this one is very confusing. This took me some time to think about, and I needed Zach's help in understanding this one. Best Scoring Original Song Score and Adaption, or Scoring Adaption, which essentially is adapted work. So whether it's an adapted score for a song or for the film, that's the category. Or it could be original score of just a song. So, like, it, it's very ridiculous that they put both of these in the same category. Also, this category only exists two times in Academy history with yeah. this title. Obviously, it's not the way they want to keep it. I'm sorry. It's so confusing. <laughs> and also, like, adapted scores doesn't exist as a category anymore. Sure. Yeah. They just it, put it in really, score. Yeah. It, and it's really um, a lingering change from musical scores. So when there were movie musicals, as we've talked about, you know, scoring had to change a bunch of times. And in the future, they'll figure it out for like 20 years. And then when the Disney Renaissance comes around in the 90s, it's back to splitting categories and trying to figure out how to give scores and music and songs awards. So Mm -hmm. it's going to be forever that we're talking about this. And the final category that he won was best song for the song, The Way We Were in The Way We Were. Yeah. So congrats to him. You know, it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Also this year, there is the win for Tatum O'Neill, winning Best Supporting Actress for her role in Paper Moon at age 10. She becomes the youngest winner of an Oscar. Yeah, pretty impressive. Which is still the age to beat. Yep, she still holds the record. Yeah. And what's funny is that this year, Tatum O'Neill was 10 years old, and John Houseman was 71 years old when he won his acting award. So this is the biggest age gap ever for two acting wins, (laughs) which is funny. Yeah, that's so crazy. (laughs) This year, um, first-time nominee George Lucas made his debut at the Academy Awards with American Graffiti. Mm -hmm. And Catherine Hepburn made her first and only appearance at the ceremony to present the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award to her friend Lawrence Weingarten. Mm. Um, She always, you know, sent someone else whenever she won an Oscar or was nominated. um, Mm -hmm. Or even if she was, like, asked to present, she declined or sent someone else, that kind of thing. But she went this year. Um, when she took the stage, she received a standing ovation. Everyone was very excited to see her. Of course. To which she replied, quote, I'm living proof that a person can wait 41 years to be unselfish. Which I think is silly. I appreciate the sentiment. And I think it's a good, like, PR spin. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that she's anxious. We know that she's nervous about these awards. It's a hard thing for people to go to these ceremonies, to sit there in tension all night, not knowing if you're going to win, not knowing how you're going to react. And we've seen people react badly in the past. Mm-hmm. Looking at you, uh, Haviland and Joan Fontaine Uh-oh. and all your girls and your issues. 
but you know, here she is and uh, she's doing her best and presenting herself as an unselfish friend. Yeah, I mean, she's just there talking about her friend, which seems normal enough. You know what? And it's a good way to kind of introduce yourself or at least get the experience of being there because then it really isn't about you, which mm-hmm. is kind of nice. Yeah. But you still get the like perk of it being all about you because it's your only appearance. Uh-huh. <laughs> and finally, this brings us to the incident. Uh-oh. The streaking incident. Uh-oh. So this year, there was a streaker. Yeah. Uh, This is probably what this ceremony is best remembered for. Streaker Robert Opal ran across the stage naked while flashing a peace sign in his hand. Great. So he ran across the stage, then he turned back, flashed the audience one more time, and then disappeared stage right. Mm -hmm. After this, uh, the lasting line, David Niven joked, Isn't it fascinating to think that probably the only laugh that man will ever get in his life is by stripping off and showing his shortcomings. Yikes. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, he was introducing Elizabeth Taylor, who was going to be announcing Best Picture. So she had to come out directly after this, Mm -hmm. uh, was a little bit delayed. And she got out to the microphone and said, that's a pretty hard act to follow. Mm-hmm. which understandable. Yeah. Uh, and I figure I may as well tell you a little bit about this incident. Um, so Robert Opal was a, a teacher, artist, and gay rights activist. Um, he kind of did this as sort of a social comment. It's hard to know. He didn't really leave a lot of information, but his nephew, uh, who is also named Robert Opal, believes that it was a social comment. Um, he uh, continued to do stuff like this fairly often, and he was very politically involved. Mm-hmm. Um, he like eventually afterwards developed his own costume character, Mr. Penis. Um, he stripped at a meeting of the Los Angeles City Council um, and continued to like do stuff like this in public spheres near San Francisco or Los Angeles. One funny thing about him in the midst of all of this is he was a former speechwriter for Ronald Reagan. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. I Which didn't even like realize that. Which is like very weird, like in contrast to this other stuff. <laughs> Quite, definitely. Yeah, I mean, he owned a homoerotic gallery in San Francisco. That was his like career. Nice. That's so funny. Uh, he actually fell into a bit of infamy because of this. You know, his mm-hmm. name, of course, being tossed around. Uh, he became a streaker for hire, crashing Hollywood events. Uh, he also performed some stand-up comedy at this time. His nephew was really interested in his life. Um, sadly, he was killed just a couple years later in 1979 um, when some burglars broke into his gallery after hours uh, and shot him. So he unfortunately passed away very soon after this streaking incident. Yeah. Um, and his nephew wrote a documentary about it in oh, 2010 called Uncle Bob. Hmm. And then he also apparently has a screenplay that he would love to get produced someday. He thinks it would be a great biopic. Hmm. That is his quote, not mine. Interesting. So anyways, take that however you want. You know, of course, people reacted like crazy to this, you know, two years in a row, these just wild incidents happening during the ceremony. Well, and it's weird because like they've already had somebody run up onto the stage before. So it's like... I don't know. That happened not too long before this even yeah. where like the guy was trying to give Bob Hope an award. Yeah. And then I don't know. It's just like I guess they don't feel like people are going to do something like this so they don't have very much security. But Yeah, either that or there's just a lot of chaos backstage and yeah. there's a lot of people with jobs and I mean it can look like you have a job that you're doing and right. then you can take your clothes off and run. <laughs> you know. <laughs> 
For all we know, he came in as a PA that day or something. Well, I I heard, I think he was posing as press. Gotcha. Yeah. I think that's what Mm -hmm. he was doing, which would be very easy to do. Oh, absolutely. So anyways, that is the ceremony. So before I turn it over to you, let me just go through some of these awards for you. Of course, Best Picture goes to The Sting. Mm -hmm. Best Director goes to George Roy Hill for The Sting. Best Actor goes to Jack Lemmon for Save the Tiger. Huzzah. Yeah. Best Actress goes to Glenda Jackson for A Touch of Class. Best Supporting Actor goes to John Houseman for The Paper Chase. And Best Supporting Actress goes to Tatum O'Neill for Paper Moon. Mm-hmm. Best Story and Screenplay based on factual material or material not previously produced or published. So original. Yeah. Goes to The Sting. Best Screenplay based on material from another medium. Adapted. Thank you. Goes to The Exorcist. Best Foreign Language Film goes to Day for Night from France. Best Documentary Feature goes to The Great American Cowboy. Best Documentary Short Subject goes to Princeton, A Search for Answers. Best Live Action Short Subject goes to The Bolero. Best Animated Short Subject goes to Frank Film. All right, here we go again. Best Original Dramatic Score goes to The Way We Were. Best Scoring, Original Song Score and Adaption or Scoring Adaption goes to The Sting. Best Song goes to The Way We Were. Best costume design goes to the Sting, Edith Head. Yeah, yeah, another her win last for win. Her. Yeah, wow, Congrats. Edith, what a great career. Best sound goes to the Exorcist, which is an interesting award. That's mm-hmm. a good win for them. Yeah, I just watched that for the first time recently. Mm. Best art direction goes to the Sting. Best cinematography goes to Cries and Whispers, and best film editing goes to the Sting. Mm-hmm. There's also an honorary award given this year to Groucho Marx for his contributions to cinema. Mm-hmm. Um, and other than that, uh, the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award, of course, goes to Lawrence Weingarten. Yes. And yeah, that's what I have to share about the ceremony today. Huzzah. And with that, uh, we can take a little break here and come back to talk about The Sting. Yes. All right, we are back. Uh, first, we will discuss the year 1973. First, with some births, we have Portia de Rossi, Jack Davenport, Jim Parsons, Adam Scott, Adrian Brody, Kevin Feige, Neil Patrick Harris, Patrick Wilson, Catherine Hahn, Kristen Wiig, Dave Chappelle, Seth MacFarlane, Paul Walker, and Ryan Johnson. All right. There were a lot more people born this year, but people that I had never really heard of, which is strange. You're um, saying that there were other people born in the year of 1973? Yeah, other you people that personally? are considered famous. <laughs> um, some debuts this year. We have John Candy, Laura Dern, Emilio Estevez, Victor Garber, Tatum O'Neill, Bernadette Peters, John Reese davies Stellan Skarsgård, and Carl Weathers. Nice. Got some fun actors in there, a lot of whom are still working voraciously. (laughs) Then for the deaths this year in 1973, uh, Edward G. Robinson. He was an actor. He appeared in over 100 films. Um, Some of his biggest were uh, Double Indemnity and The Ten Commandments. Um, He also was given an honorary award at a point in his career because he had never been nominated for an Oscar. Mm. And they felt he should be recognized. (laughs) Um, Noel Coward died this year. Uh, Of course, he was a writer, director, and actor. 20 of his plays were made into films. 
um, including Blythe Spirit, Private Lives, and Cavalcade, which ended up winning Best Picture somehow. A film that we talked about uh, that he acted in was Around the World in 80 Days. Right. He was nominated for writing for In Which We Serve and received an Academy Award for it as well. Arthur Freed. Oh. We talked about him a lot. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, He was a producer and songwriter um, for MGM for many, many years. Um, He was considered MGM's top musical producer. His unit was known as the Freed Unit. Mm. Um, Some of the, like, his producing credits, I'll just read off a couple of them. The Wizard of Oz, Babes in Arms, Babes on Broadway, Meet Me in St. Louis, Zigfield Follies, Easter Parade... On the Town, Annie Get Your Gun, Showboat, An American in Paris, Singing in the Rain, Brigadoon, Gigi. So lots of famous classic Hollywood musicals. He won Best Picture of, as a producer twice for Gigi and An American in Paris. Um, he also won the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award. And he also won an honorary Oscar for producing six Oscar telecasts. Yeah, I was going to say, he was one of the better producers. Yeah, probably from his many decades of yeah. producing musicals. Mm-hmm. Irene Ryan died this year, uh. Uh, actress. She's most widely known for playing Granny on the Beverly Hillbillies. Now she's also known in the entertainment circles uh, for the acting award and scholarship that was started by her foundation. Yes. Um. I think both of us got nominated for Irene yeah. Ryan Awards. Neither of us competed for it, but, no, but we got those nominations. Yeah. <laughs> Frances Marion, she was a screenwriter. She contributed to 325 screenplays in the early days of Hollywood, and she was the first ever screenwriter to win two writing awards um, for The Big House and The Champ, and then other popular films of hers included The Secret Six, Men and Bill, Anna Christie, and Secrets. Mm. So not only was she the first woman to be to win twice for writing, she was the first person. Mm, I remember those days. That's so nice. William Inge, writer, uh, <laughs> mostly a playwright. Um, of course, he wrote Picnic, Bus Stop, among others. He won uh, Best Original Screenplay for Splendor in the Grass. The old guard is passing. Mm-hmm. It's very sad. Yeah. Betty Grable, actress. Um, her fam- most famous film was How to Marry a Millionaire. Um, She was one of the highest grossing actresses of all time. Uh, For 10 years, she was ranked in the top 10 for box office draw. That ties her in second place for women for the amount of times Mm. um, with a few other women. And in 1946 and 1947, she was the highest earning American woman, period. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Lon Chaney Jr. He was an actor. Of course, uh, the one that we've talked about Two of the ones we've talked about for him are Of Mice and Men and High Noon. He was also had a small role in The Defiant Ones. Um, he was most famous for Universal's monster movies as The Wolfman and Frankenstein's Monster. He also played The Mummy. So. Oh, wow. He's a lot of monsters. Yep. Another shocking one was Bruce Lee. Uh. Uh, of course, actor and... Um, he was bringing the like kung fu movies to the height of their popularity right here at the beginning of the 70s um and then passed away very young john ford <laughs> uh director of course five of his films were nominated for best picture um how green was my valley was the only winner um he was nominated five times for best director and won four which is still the record to this day 
He won for The Informer, The Grapes of Wrath, How Green Was My Valley, and The Quiet Man. He also won Best Documentary Feature and Best Documentary Short Subject. Twelve of his actors were nominated for acting awards with five wins. So pretty mm-hmm. impressive career. We've talked about him many, many times. In fact, he was our very first Academy Archives yeah. episode. You can listen to that to learn all about his life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have, uh, last but not least, Sesu Hayakawa. Um, he was an actor. He was a heartthrob. Yeah. We talked about him a lot when he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for The Bridge on the River Kwai. Yeah. Hmm. So those are our deaths this year. Um, some little uh, tidbits of news about the film industry this year. Westworld becomes the first film to utilize digital image processing to animate two minutes and 31 seconds of film for the sequences seen from the perspective of the character Gunslinger, who is an android. Mm, okay. Um, so the picture, other in other ways, you could just say it, it appears to be pixelated. Like, Okay. So it, it's not very impressive when you watch it today. <laughs> okay, fair. Um, but it was the first time that a huge like commercial film like that used computers to animate. Okay, there you go. Yeah. Um, for a short time, The Exorcist breaks the record for the highest grossing film of all time. Wow, really? Yeah. Wow. It was the highest grossing film of the year. And for a short time, it beat out The Godfather to hold that top record. Oh my goodness. And then, of course, The Godfather would overtake it. Another re-release of Gone with the Wind <laughs> would overtake that, you know. As they do. And then a bunch of films in the 70s and 80s. Star Wars. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, Jaws. We'll, we'll get there. At the 26th Primetime Emmys, uh, they were held uh, shortly after the 46th Academy Awards. This was the first year that the Daytime Emmys existed. Okay. So there was enough daytime television that they wanted to start recognizing with awards that had never been recognized before. So they created the Daytime Emmys. I will not talk about those ever again. They really have no bearing on the film industry at all. <laughs> all <Sorry>. right. <laughs> um, the big winners and uh, big things nominated this year at the Emmys were MASH, Upstairs, Downstairs, The Carol Burnett Show, and the uh, TV film, The Glass Menagerie, with mm. Catherine Hepburn. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, she did not win for that, Yeah, uh, but she was nominated. That's what we watched in school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have the 28th Tony Awards uh, with The River Niger winning Best Play and Raisin winning Best Musical, which is nope, don't say the it. musical version of A Raisin in the Sun, with the book written by Lorraine Hansberry's uh, husband. Oh, my. All yeah. Right. He's like, let me take a turn, honey. Yeah. Um, Gigi, in its first run on Broadway, finally, was nominated for four awards. So that's happening. <laughs> Finally got adapted for the stage. Um, Christopher Plummer won for playing Cyrano. So ah, that's very fun. good. Um, and then A Moon for the Misbegotten and Candide won honorary awards for being revived. Oh, okay. Fine. So we started to have some revivals, and then these productions were both just so good, and they were like, well, we can't say that it was the best musical or the best play. Right, because it's not original to this year yeah but they had to give them honorary <laughs> awards because they probably were much better than the ones that won <laughs> but coming up in within only a couple years of of this happening 
those categories exist. There you go. That's how it happens. Uh huh. So on to The Sting, uh, starting with a recap. Petty con man Johnny Hooker cons $11,000 with the help of his friend Luther, who says he's trying to get out of the game. He suggests Hooker get connected with an old friend, Henry Gondorf, so he can learn the big con. They find out the man they conned was working for crime boss Doyle Lonigan, and Hooker pays him back with counterfeit bills. Because of both incidents, Lonigan sends his men to kill Luther. Hooker finds Gondorf, and they strike up a friendship, hoping to get back at Lonigan. They decide to create a huge ruse by employing several other grifters to create a fake horse betting ring. To lure Lonigan in, Gondorf beats him at his own poker game and invites him to partake in the horse betting. They lure him in further by allowing him to win a few bets. Lonigan finally receives the tip to bet on Lucky Dan and makes a $500,000 bet, which would be about $12 million today, um, hoping to take Gondorf for all he's worth. FBI begin to raid the establishment and claim they arrived on a tip from Hooker. Gondorf shoots Hooker, then the FBI shoot Gondorf and rush Lonigan away from the scene so he will abandon any hope of his money. It's revealed that everything was part of the con when Hooker and Gondorf rise laughing, congratulating one another and everyone involved on their huge score. <laughs> I guess he gave away the ending. We probably should have given a warning. Oh, come on. It's, this <laughs> came out in the 70s. Gosh. It's got a good twist. <laughs> it does have a good twist. So uh, this film had a budget of five and a half million dollars and it grossed 160 million. Oh my goodness. Which is crazy because it was still only number two at the box office in 1973. Wow. What was The Exorcist's budget? Do you know? I don't know the budget, but they grossed a lot more than Boy, 160. I can't imagine it was that high of a budget film. Well, this was not a high budget film I either. know. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. They both seem pretty low budget to me. Yeah. And they both grossed crazy amounts. Yeah. So this is uh, The Sting, still number 21 all time, adjusted for inflation. All right, so The Sting currently uh, at 19, we have Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Then at 20, The Lion King. Then at 21, The Sting. All right. Uh, then at 22, we have Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Just to show yeah. you how popular wow. this film really was. Crazy. Just d- since we're discussing The Exorcist, um, it is currently still number nine. <gasps> Are you serious? Yep. Adjusted for inflation. Does it get a lot of re-releases around like Halloween or something? Um, not as many as you might think. It yeah. was just extremely, extremely popular. Wow, wow. I guess that's why everybody knows it. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the most seen movies of all time. Wow, interesting. It's scary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. So the story of this film is very interesting, especially the beginning. Um, so David S. Ward, he was a writer. Um, he was working for an educational film company at the time um, when he started researching pickpockets for some reason. Nice. And <laughs> uh, thinking that he really wanted to see a good movie following characters who were grifters or conmen. So he was mm-hmm. like, oh, I don't think there's any good movies out there with these kind of characters. So I'll write one. Um, he ended up coming up with the story for The Sting, and then he pitched it to producers Julia and Michael Phillips, uh, who were husband and wife, and their producing partner, Tony Bill. They liked it, so they commissioned him to write the script uh, by paying him $3,500 and saying they would help him try to produce it. Um, it was passed around Hollywood offices, and no one thought much of it until Rob Cohen, who was working as a reader for agent Mike Metavoy. Uh, Rob wrote in his note accompanying the script, quote, 
the great American screenplay, and it will make an award-winning major cast, major director film. Well, I guess that was kind of true. Yeah. So he's just an assistant who's doing coverage of scripts for this <laughs> agent, and this is what he wrote. And then Metavoy told Cohen that he would try to sell it on his recommendation and threatened to fire him if he was not able to sell it oh. because it was such an insane thing for him to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, literally that afternoon, Universal bought it. All right. So he was on the money. He had good instincts. He did. Um, Rob Cohen, of course, is now a director. Um, one of the most famous films he has done is The Fast and the Furious. Uh, oh, my gosh. Blockbuster. <laughs> Jeez. Um, he still has that coverage note hanging in his office. As framed. he should. Yes. As he should. That's awesome. I love those kinds of stories. Of course, um, Metavoy would go on to have his own uh, great career. He went on sh- very shortly after this to become head of production at United Artists. And then uh, he has led other production companies. And he was responsible for films like Rocky, Annie Hall, Amadeus, Silence of the Lambs, Sleepless in Seattle. Oh, my gosh. Hook, Zodiac, among others what? being produced. <laughs> Wow. So he went on to become one of like the best producers in history. So anyways, a fun little factoid that these two people were connected to the making of this. Great. Um, in the script, uh, Henry Gondorf as a character was written as just a very small side character and kind of like dumb and I don't know. I don't. I, it would be weird to read the original script because huh. I don't know how that would work. But the part slowly grew bigger, of course, and more important as Paul Newman became more and more involved with the project. He kind of had the idea that he wanted to play this part and that it should be a bigger part. Gotcha. Um, Slowly, rumors grew that Redford and Newman would be reunited um, in these two leading roles, including being reunited with their director from their first partnership, uh, George Roy Hill, who also directed Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Um, Newman pulled a few more strings, getting the character expanded, getting his rate of $500,000 plus percentage of the film's profits, <laughs> uh, and getting his friends, Robert Redford and George Roy Hill attached to the picture. George Roy Hill was interested in making the film an homage to the thirties gangster films of old Hollywood and studied them extensively in the lead up to shooting. Um, one of his main takeaways, which is kind of strange is that in those old 30s Hollywood films, there's basically no background actors. Oh, okay. So he wanted this to have the same look and feel of that. Interesting. Because often, like, the gangsters would just die in the middle of a New York street and be totally alone. And he just, like, liked that look and that feel. Interesting. Um, Even though it was, like, supposed to be in the middle of the day in New York City. (laughs) Um, so he basically used no extras in the film. Oh, interesting. So if you think back to the... I can see it now. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of empty streets. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Um, and that was like very different compared to the norm of the 60s and 70s, where yeah. like outside street scenes would be totally packed with people. I right. mean, think of like the French Connection. Yeah. Or even um, Midnight Cowboy. Yeah. Uh, Hill also worked extensively with art director Henry Bumstead, cinematographer Robert Surtees, one of our favorites, mm. and costumer Edith Head, mm, also one of favorites. our favorites, uh, to come up with a very muted color palette for the film. 
This was achieved in the sets. Uh, they also utilized period lighting and techniques. Oh, that's cool. To like try to give it more of that uh-huh. 1930s feel. And then, of course, the exquisite suits worn by the leads oh, in the film. Very, very well tailored. <laughs> very, very good looking. It was funny. She said something about like when she won this award, uh-huh. she said something like, I didn't really have to work on this film. I mean, they're two of the most handsome men to ever work in Hollywood. <laughs> oh, you did. Then we had artist Jaroslav Gaber, uh, who created all of the title cards throughout the film in the same color scheme. And they were modeled after the Saturday Evening Post um, in its heyday, mm. of course, in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, mm. using the same like type font and all of that, which is really interesting. interesting. And they just added like a fun feel to yeah. the film as well. Honestly, I was so surprised watching this movie because it felt very old to me. Yeah, you it know? feels like it could have. It feels like a color film made in like the early, the early forties. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Um, Marvin Hamlish, of course, we've mentioned him many times. He created the score for the film, mixing some original compositions with ragtime standards from Scott Joplin. It actually was so popular of a film that it revived interest in Joplin's music and career. And the main theme, Hamlish's rendition of the Entertainer was released as a single and reached number three on the top 40 charts. (laughs) Oh, my word. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) Joplin's resurgence in the public eye was so vast that he ended up being posthumously awarded the Pulitzer Prize in 1976 for his overall contribution to American music. Oh, my goodness. And a lot of people think that that's why people today still really know his music. Yeah. Mostly because of this film. That's crazy. Yeah. The Sting... This is another crazy thing. Was the only film in which Robert Redford was nominated for Best Actor. Mm. Which is well, crazy. And when we started watching this, I was like, I think this is the first time I've ever seen Robert Redford before. And you're like, no, can't be, can't be. It's like, I don't think he's been in the movies we've been watching. He has not been in many, basically none of the best pictures we've watched. Yeah. Um, but as we... R- learned you had seen several with him in it and just didn't realize it was him (laughs) redford was worried during the filming that he wasn't getting to do very much acting because as he said his character was just running around the whole time (laughs) (laughs) which is true he has so many scenes where he's just (laughs) running really fast um at the end of the shooting because of this george roy hill gave him a sculpture of the classic character roadrunner <laughs> good very good uh with an inscription at the bottom that said if you can't be good be fast <laughs> <laughs> amazing so that is pretty fun that is great so this is a very strange thing that happened on this set uh, a story that paul newman told many times afterward um so he and george roy hill had worked together many many times on films um and one afternoon during the process of making this film they had drinks together and hill had invited newman to his office and just before that he told newman that he didn't have anything to drink so he invited him for drinks but didn't have anything and told him to pick something up on his way. Um, Newman picked something up and then sent Hill a bill for $8 after. Okay. Um, (laughs) Hill then uh, sent Newman a three-page letter about the nature of friendship and how (laughs) Newman had abused it as a joke, but it was just funny. (laughs) 
Um, Newman responded to that by going to his bungalow and cutting his desk in half with a chainsaw. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Leaving a note on the desk that said, quote, this isn't about friendship. It's about $8. (laughs) I may detonate the entire bungalow next time so I wouldn't mess around. (laughs) So to this, uh, George Roy Hill told Universal what had happened, and Universal sent Newman a bill for $800 to pay for the desk, which apparently Newman did not ever pay. Yeah, I mean, the principle of the thing is the thing in question here. That's incredible. So that's something that happened during this. Uh, Two friends uh, being crazy, making a film together. Cutting my desk in half. Uh, sometimes you get around those people that just make you too goofy. Yeah. I haven't mentioned Robert Shaw, yet he was uh, the person who played Lonigan. Um, mm. He was very good in the film. He begged and begged and begged to have top billing also to have his name oh, appear to help above his career. the credits. Yeah. yeah. And people think this is why he was not nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Oh, well, I guess you got to pick your battles. Yeah. Um, Because he was very good in this film. Yeah, And it's held up as, like, a very good performance of, Mm -hmm. like, you know, a bad guy getting his due. Yeah. Just before filming, a couple days before, uh, he was in an accident, uh, some kind of accident, and injured his leg, um, which meant that he had to be in a brace for the next several months causing him to have a pretty severe limp. Oh. And so he was worried that he was going to get fired from the film, but then he and uh, Hill, the director, decided that it would be fine to work it into the character. So Great. that's why he's limping as the character the whole time. Yeah. And it adds, it's an interesting thing it to the character. It kind of makes him have like a little something. It's like, you think he's like got some kind of weakness or like something. Yeah. So filming of this began in January of 1973, and then it premiered at the end of 73, which I thought was pretty interesting uh, around Christmas. Um, It was filmed mostly on the Universal backlot, but also at locations in Chicago, Santa Monica, and downtown LA. Um, Hill specifically picked out locations that were still in their original 1930s look Mm. um, up to this point, Mm -hmm. um, including Chicago's Union Station, the Biltmore, and the Green Hotel in LA. And the Santa Monica Carousel. Uh-huh. I was right. You were right. I knew it looked like it. <laughs> and they said it was really hard to do the location shooting because huge crowds would form. Because sure. the two leads were like the at the mo- height of their yeah, fame. Like the most famous men around. Yeah. And people compared it to like seeing the Beatles. Huh. Where like they would be out filming and people would just like flood the streets and like scream and they it was really hard for them to get takes off because of this and like they would be running and they would you know (laughs) point and watch and try to break through and touch them and i don't know so strange Hmm. um the last thing i'll mention is just like you mentioned julia phillips this is her Mm -hmm. win for best uh, picture as a producer of course uh, she and her husband and their producing partner all of their first wins Um, She had a really strange career. Um, She produced several other big films with her husband and Mm. their, like, production company. The other biggest one being Taxi Driver. Oh. 
But then she uh, really struggled with addiction as uh. she got very famous and made a lot of money. Um, one year, she spent um, close to $120,000 just on cocaine. Oops. And then it really tanked her career, of course, yeah. because of that. Well, that's sad. Um, the last film that she produced, uh, she like sold lots of her belongings to try to get back into producing. Aww. And then the film, it did debut at Cannes, but it only grossed $5,000. <gasps> oh, that's so tragic. <laughs> so it was a major flop. Yeah. Um, she ended up dying very young, only in her 50s. Wow. That's, that's rough. But one of the main things that she is known for, besides producing The Sting and being the first woman to win for Best Picture, is her 1991 autobiography, You'll Never Eat Lunch in This Town Again, uh, hmm. which is one of the most famous yeah. like Hollywood exposés. Yeah. Um, extremely like scathing, scathing uh, stories about all the people in Hollywood in the 70s. She was very close also with Steven Spielberg. Uh, she helped co-produce Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Mm. Um, and everyone really tried to, like, be friends with her and be cordial to her. Yeah. Once she got this book out there, um, there was no way that she was going to work again, too. Yeah. Wow. Um, when she was trying to get it published, um, it took the lawyers at Random House 14 months to be able to go through all of it and approve different things Oof. for publication Yeah, because there were so many like stories about people. Things got so bad for her too, that in kind of an ironic um, life imitating art. Oh no. Preeminent Los Angeles restaurant Morton's Steakhouse. Oh yeah. Um, banned her from ever eating at the restaurant uh, again. You'll never eat lunch in this town again. Yeah. There's a lot more about her, and we'll talk about her again, I'm sure, uh, because she produces many films that are dominated or, you know, close to the uh, best picture category. Mm. Yeah, she's a very interesting character. It's good for her that she was in the right place at the right time and got this uh, win for women. Yeah. But, (laughs) yeah, just interesting. Worth reading up on. Yeah, definitely. Um, So with that, we come to the end of our program, and... That means it's time to thank the Academy for things relating to this film, these people, this year in Academy history. I will start. Go for it. I will just go ahead and thank the Academy for the film in general. (laughs) The Sting. Uh, One of my favorite films growing up. Super fun to watch. Um, it's, It's just fun, too, because it is meant to be a fun film. Yeah. There aren't a lot of these that are winning in this time. There are a lot or of like, that are going to ever win again. <laughs> yeah, just like really heavy. And I think it helps that this film is sort of in the same vein of this other 70s films that are winning of like railing against the establishment mm-hmm. and that kind of like there's no peace and chaos is the way and, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, stick it to the man. Yeah. And it's still in that vein because the con men win out in the end uh but it's all fun and you know there's not really there's a couple deaths that are like played for a joke in a way almost yeah. they're not dramatic but it's not like the godfather right huge <laughs> contrast even though there's a lot of the same sort of like mobster mafia type stuff going on yeah and then it's just like a throwback to this classic you know mm-hmm. hollywood days so yeah there you go Glad you got to enjoy it. I did. 
I would like to thank the Academy for <laughs> back-to-back incidents uh-huh. and saying, what else could go wrong? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what else could go well, wrong? Well, just to remind everybody about the speech thing and be good to go. Little did they know they needed to remind everybody about the time somebody broke onto the stage. Yeah, please keep your clothes on, folks. Uh-huh. As you were just saying about the 70s, chaos is the way. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> I would like to thank the Academy uh, for some of the newcomers blasting onto the screen. I'm thinking, you know, Tatum O'Neill, but also George Lucas. Yeah. Uh, and of course, Francis Ford Coppola is like still, still kind of a newcomer. Mm-hmm. It's just fun to see this new group of people. Mm-hmm. A-, a lot of this, it reminds me of the old Hollywood time where mm-hmm. it's a whole bunch of really young people all making really popular stuff. Yeah. And they're all making exactly what they want to make. And it's very, you know, the way that they see the world right yeah. then. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that old group who was young to start Hollywood is finally now dying out. Yeah. Or retiring or whatever. And so this new, it's the first time we've really had another fresh group of all very young filmmakers yeah well and what's crazy to me is like there haven't even been a hundred ceremonies to date yeah so like we haven't even really fully passed a full generation of people Mm -hmm. i mean i would say there's like a transition around this time from the older folk to the new people coming onto the scene Mm -hmm. but like it hasn't been going on the film industry hasn't existed long enough for there to be like huge changes in personnel Mm -hmm. so it's pretty cool to kind of see that transition happening well and it's interesting to think that these are the people that were watching as the film industry really made strides in like the late 40s to the early 60s yeah like those are the films that were coming out when they were young it's like how steven spielberg was so enamored by seeing the train crash Mm -hmm in The Greatest Show on Earth when that showed in theaters, Mm -hmm. and that is what inspired him. You know, like, those kinds of things are what these people have grown up on and are now beginning to produce. Yeah, pretty interesting. Very cool. I'm surprised you didn't thank the Academy for child actors. Uh, I've thanked them enough. People know. Okay, all right. right. There's still an archives episode about this year, so. Okay, oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) I would like to thank the Academy for friends that take it too far. Uh-oh. <laughs> the best kind of friends, though. Yeah, yeah. you always have that one friend yeah. who's just, like, going for it. And, you know, you have to do it in the right context. And these guys were buddies that knew each other well enough to know not to push the wrong buttons, but to have fun. Yeah. Which I think is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Good for them. Yeah. Well, that's our episode. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. The Sting. Classic film. Go watch it. (laughs) It's great. And if you hadn't known the twist, sorry, but... Oopsies. Yeah. Gotta say it to talk about the film. Yeah. If you're listening to this podcast, you know what you're getting into. Yeah. We're talking about old things, so go watch them. And then join us again for our next episode, where we discuss another film from this year in... A new Academy Archives. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in to Thank the Academy. You can follow us on social media at Thank the Academy Podcast on Instagram 
and at ThankAcademyPod on Twitter. If you enjoy listening to the show, make sure to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on your favorite streaming platform. The theme song was created by the one and only Noah Heisinger. Join us next week on Thank the Academy.